Today's Thanksgiving Day. I was asked to remember that fact in the preaching this afternoon, and so as reading, I've selected Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is our reading. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And our text this afternoon is the verses 9 and 10. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today is Thanksgiving Day, and so we'll be spending some time this afternoon thinking about that, focusing on what Scripture says about giving thanks to God. Scripture is full of praises, thanksgiving, and gratitude towards God. 
What we're covering in our text this afternoon is just a small fraction of that. Scripture brings home this message to us because it wants us to understand something of the power and the grandeur of God. We live in a time in which there is a sense of grandeur at creation. Armed with a GoPro or a mobile phone, people have gone into all parts of the earth and documented it. But very few see God's greatness. None says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens, as it says in Job 35. And very few acknowledge the sheer goodness of God that he reveals through creation. One, our problem is that we're so used to God's goodness, we don't see it anymore. We've lost our sense of wonder, not just at the world in which we live, but at God's goodness. Paradoxically, that makes us enjoy the world less. You enjoy a gift more when you know the person who gave it to you. When you know who it came from, it becomes much more meaningful because it represents the relationship that you have with that person. And so it is also with us and life in this world. Psalm 145 wants us to recapture this sense of perspective. It wants us to grasp something of who the Lord is and His goodness towards us. We need our perspective changed, not just when things go badly, but also when they're going well. And so this afternoon, I may bring the gospel to you, summarized in a question. Do you give thanks to God for His goodness? And we'll pay attention to two points. Give thanks for His goodness to all people, and give thanks for His goodness to His people. So let's pick up this psalm together again and look at it. It opens with these words, The Lord is good to all, our text. It opens in verse 9 with the words, the Lord is good to all. Now, how, how do you know this to be true? How do you know that the Lord is good to all? Well, the psalm gives us a lot of evidence, but when you start looking at how this evidence is laid out in the psalm, you would have expected him to, to begin with a description of what God does in creation. And that's not what he does. He doesn't start with that. In fact, he doesn't get to that until halfway through. Verse 14, we would have expected David to begin with creation, but he begins with something else. You can learn a lot about someone by what other people say. And so here we, we learn about who God is by the things that David says about him. David is overwhelmed by the greatness and the goodness of God, and he wants us to be overwhelmed as well. Don't forget that he lived a life that was often difficult. His life was marked by conflict, political instability, family difficulties, personal sin. Yet at the end of his life, which is full of difficulties, his conclusion is that the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. It matters who says that. If someone is talking about someone that he or she has never met, then what is said will not necessarily be reliable. And we've seen that, right? We see this in society around us all the time. 
All sorts of people pass on all sorts of information about people around them, whether in person or online, and often don't bother to verify it properly. But David passes on what he knows about the Lord, and he has verified it because he's experienced it personally. He had personal knowledge of the Lord. He calls him my God and King, right from the first verse. This psalm overflows with praise. It begins with personal praise in the first two verses. But by the end he says, by the end of the psalm he says, let all flesh, all flesh, bless his holy name forever and ever. Well, that's comprehensive regardless of how you look at it. All flesh means every living thing that exists. And forever and ever is eternity. So what he's saying is that God is so great And so praiseworthy that the only thing that would adequately reflect it is if all living things praised him. And even if they did, they would have to do it forever and ever in order to adequately reflect the absolute praiseworthiness of God. And they would never run out of things to say about him. Now you think about what kind of a God it would take to evoke that kind of a description. And then you start to see a little bit of what David sees. If eternity is not enough to praise him, then certainly setting aside one day and one afternoon service is not enough either, is it? The psalm suggests that God is praiseworthy because he acts in history. David hints at that already in the first two verses. Verses 1 and 2 refer to his name. Did you see that? Bless your name forever and ever. Verse 2, praise your name forever and ever. What's God's name? It's simply his reputation. His name is the sum total of his deeds and his self-revelation. He's revealed himself, verse 5, in in wondrous works, and um, verse 6, in awesome deeds. So, So what are these things that God has done? Well, the rest of the psalm shows that it is simply his, his acts of salvation for his people in history and his general acts of providence towards all people. So essentially the two points of, our, of, of, of the sermon, his goodness to all people and his goodness to his people. And it suggests that this God works on a scale that transcends generations, that he's building a kingdom that will never end. Now, you might expect that if God is so great and working on such a great scale, he can't possibly be preoccupied with individual people in our brief moments on earth, let alone the rest of creation, let alone inanimate things. If you think about it, there are so, so many people in so many different situations. Have you ever had that? You're driving to work maybe, you're, you're on the freeway and driving along, you see literally thousands of other people driving with you and then they all go off into different directions. All these people have their own lives, they all have their own cares, their own responsibilities. How can God possibly know about them all? But our psalm actually tells us the opposite. Our text says that the Lord is good to all. How does he show this goodness? Well, the psalm gives us some examples. And um, we certainly can't say everything that there is to say about the psalm, but we can pick, pick out some examples. Look at verse 14. It says, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. You think about how kind this is. Here you have people that are falling, people that are bowed down, 
people filled with care and worry. Maybe you're one of them. And it says that the Lord upholds those who are falling and raises up all those who are bowed down. It doesn't even specify that you need to be a believer first, because remember, the Lord is good to all. There is a way in which He shows His goodness to all people. That's the sort of God He is. Think, for example, of the widow of Zarephath. First book of Kings, chapter 17. You remember that story? There's a terrible famine in Israel, and the prophet Elijah is commanded to go outside of Israel to Zarephath. He's out of the promised land. He's away from God's people. And he's providentially directed to a widow there. Now, you cannot possibly imagine a person more disadvantaged than a widow living in a foreign country during a time of famine in those days. She literally has nothing. She's a widow, bowed down by cares and concerns. And, and the Lord comes, he, he steps into her life, so to speak. He, he cares for her so that she can provide food for Elijah. He does that for this random widow living in a random place that most of us, we couldn't even find it on a map. At this time in history, and the Lord does that for this person. And he supports her throughout this, this, throughout this famine, her and her son and Elijah. Isn't that, isn't that kind? That's the sort of God that he is. That's the sort of thing that the Lord does. That's, that's how he cares for you too. And it's not just people that are sustained by him. It's all of creation. All of creation is sustained by him. Look at verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every living thing that even includes animals. And they're dependent on, on God as well. We sang about that from Psalm 104, but, but so are we. So are we. God gives food in due season. Everything has its season. Everything has its time. There's a tremendous consistency in life, a tremendous consistency in the world around us. Now, by nature, we tend to focus on the negative, and we forget about this when things go wrong. We focus on the things that are going wrong in the moment, and we forget about His enormous faithfulness in the time that came before. But we should not question God's goodness to us if we're going through a time of trial now Sometimes it can be difficult to trust God when things are going well because you wonder, well, you know, something bad might happen later on. When's the other shoe going to drop? But you should remember, even when bad things do happen, and they will to all of us at some point in time, that does not take away from God's faithfulness that He showed to us in the past. It doesn't take away from the generosity that has supported us throughout our life. So if you want evidence of the Lord's faithfulness, you need, to look at what is, you need to look at what is happening in your life and what has happened and not spend all of that energy thinking about things that might never happen. God is good even to those who actively oppose Him. Think about that. Matthew 5, verse 45 the Lord Jesus said that the Father makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Consider God's tremendous grace. At this very moment, the sun is rising somewhere. At any given point in time, the sun is rising somewhere in the world. 
Every moment people are being given a new day by God. At this very moment, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are are being given a new day by God. Even though so many are ignorant of Him, even though so many will not acknowledge Him, even though so many actively rebel against Him, He makes the sun rise on them all. He sends rain on them all. God is extravagantly generous. He's over the top in His generosity, and it is completely without merit. Sometimes the most godless people you can imagine are also the wealthiest. Sometimes the people who love God the most live in powerlessness and oppression. Yet their oppression does not mean that God has forgotten about them. God cares about them too. In fact, God is never far away. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says that the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him, He also hears their cry and saves them. So he cares for both. But God showers grace on those who don't know him, and he showers grace on those who call upon him. The Lord is good to all, like our text says. The Lord is good to all, but his goodness shows up even more starkly against the darkness of sin. Consider verse 9 of our text, the second half. It says, His mercy is over all that he has made, And that word mercy shares a root with the word merciful in verse 8. It does that in Hebrew and in English. And verse 8 is more or less a quotation from Exodus 34, verse 6. I might wonder why does that matter? Well, Exodus 34 is important because it comes right after the people broke the covenant at Mount Sinai. Remember, God had revealed himself to these people that barely knew him, he'd entered into a covenant relationship with them. He'd given his law to Moses. While he was doing that, in the very process of giving his law to Moses, the people at the bottom of the mountain reject his self-revelation. They make a golden calf, and they worship that instead. And, and, and the Lord punishes them for that. Then he enters into a covenant with them again, and that's when he reveals himself in these words that are echoed in verse 8. So verse 8 is a reminder of how badly humans can sin, even in the middle of God's goodness, even, even humans that know the Lord, even humans that have, in a sense, personally seen his self-revelation, they can still sin. And then look at verse 9, it echoes that word mercy, and it says this mercy that God shows to his people, on some level he shows to all people. His mercy is over all that he has made. There's a way in which God's covenantal mercy that he shows to his people spills over into the rest of life, and others who are in the vicinity benefit from that. God's special deep love for his people leaves traces behind all over the world. That's the same kind of idea that we find echoed in John 3, verse 16, when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. The specific mercy that God shows to people and to his people is echoed in the fact that he continues to sustain all people, and he does that in spite of their sin. He does it from moment to moment, from heartbeat to heartbeat, sustains all these people. Doesn't that blow your mind? It should. 
Is that not an amazing thing to you? Does that not make you worship God? Or don't you see? It's something to remember, you know, when you want to share the gospel with unbelievers. Everybody has already encountered the Lord on some level, no matter who they are. Even the most hardened unbeliever, even the most foul-mouthed mate at work has encountered the Lord on some level. Because everybody receives life from Him. Everybody's being sustained by Him. You can't get much more personal than that. They just don't realize it yet. So this is a great starting point for sharing the gospel, God's providence. You're not bringing something foreign and unfamiliar into the conversation. God is as close to them as their next breath. The only difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that the believer knows God and thanks him for his mercy, and the unbeliever doesn't. That's the only difference. God shows mercy to those who continue to reject him in this life. But you need to remember the mercy is not indefinite. Unless these people turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, those traces of mercy are all they will ever receive. Verse 20 says that the Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. It's interesting, isn't it? We tend to focus on the negative in life. But this psalm, in a sense, looks at, at all of life in, in all of its details. And this is the first time that it mentions the wicked, and it does that right at the end. You might read the psalm and note that it doesn't try to explain the presence of suffering or natural disasters in this world. Probably the first thing that comes to mind for us. But the psalm doesn't attempt to explain that, and in a way it doesn't need to. We, we see it as a problem, the presence of suffering. But as far as David is concerned, the only thing that needs to be explained is that one day God will have his day of reckoning with the wicked. Now, maybe you don't find that satisfactory. Maybe you've had personal experience with pain, suffering, difficulties. Or maybe just read the news. You wonder how you can reconcile all that with verse 9 of our text. As you know, two weeks ago, a terrible earthquake struck the southern part of Turkey and the northern part of Syria. So far, there have been over 40,000 deaths and over 122,000 injuries. 26 million people need help in some form. Entire families, no different from yours, are sleeping in the streets, literally in the middle of winter. The saddest picture of all was, was one I saw a few days ago in the Australian, a picture of a, a little boy sitting on top of a big pile of rubble. His home had been destroyed. His entire family had died. This boy was the only one left sitting on a big pile of rubble. Now you think of that. Have that picture in your mind. Then read the words of verse 9 again. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is to all that He has made. How do you make sense out of that? Well, the main thing we should remember when we consider these things is that God did not create the world in that way. His first great act out of all of the great acts that he did, his first great act was to create the world, and he made it very good. We should never forget that. If you want to talk about providence, your first starting point will always have to be creation. 
So what you see now is not the way that it's supposed to be. The world stopped being very good when the first human beings brought sin into the world by rebelling against God. That rebellion was so serious because they were the crown of God's creation. When we struggle with the presence of evil and disaster in this world, it's because we have not fully grasped what these things mean. We have not fully grasped the consequences of the fall into sin. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is not just moral lawlessness, but sin brings with it a chaos and disorder that has contaminated the entire world. So when you're looking at those piles of rubble, you're looking at creation in bondage to decay. Scripture says that creation is groaning as it waits for God to set all things right. When earthquakes rumble through countries like Turkey and Syria, this is creation groaning. Now, as far as the Bible is concerned, there is a sense in which natural disasters are the result of sin as well. Not in a specific sense that you can say that, that, that you can draw back or you can draw a connection, let's say, between this, this earthquake and specific actions done by specific people in the countries where they happen. But it's certainly... Um, generally the result of sin in the sense that this world lies under a curse for which we collectively are responsible. And, and Scripture doesn't ignore this. In fact, Jesus himself spoke about this in Luke 13, verse 4 and 5. He commented on another kind of a natural disaster that had taken place in his day. A tower at a place called Siloam, which collapsed seemingly at random. Eighteen people died. 18 people died, 18 empty places at dinner that night. Jesus makes two points about that disaster at Siloam. The first is that he connects it back to sin. He asks them, do you think that these people were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? In other words, these people were sinners, and Jesus brings that to the foreground first. There is a sense, there is a sense in which everybody who dies deserved it. Second, those who remained were no better. Therefore, the fact that they lived so long was God's mercy. So he's looking at it not from the perspective of why did these people have to die, but why do the rest of us live? And he closes with a general call to repentance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that changes the way that you ask the question. It changes the tone when you look at it from that angle, it changes how you interpret the things that happen. We see disasters as an aberration in an, in an otherwise normal life. Jesus sees it as God's mercy, preventing what we otherwise deserve. Now you may ask, doesn't the fact that we are God's children make any difference? Shouldn't it make a difference? I mean, if we're God's children, why do things like that happen to us as well? Surely there were Christians in Turkey and Syria as well. People who had it tough enough already. Why, why are they not exempt? Why were need, we not exempt from the things that happened to us? But here's the thing. We should remember that even though we are children, we too are sustained by God's grace. We are children sustained by grace who 
still live in a world which we have corrupted. We have a change in status, but not in location, so to speak. So when we encounter the general consequences of sin in our own lives, we should not be surprised. Now there's probably a way in which we, we think deep down inside, I just want everyone to be happy. Maybe sometimes our prayers reflect that a little bit too. God, just make everything be okay. Make everyone happy. Don't let anything bad happen to anyone. But the goal of life can never be a temporary happiness. Even if everyone is happy for all of an average lifespan of 80 years, it's still temporary. That, that happiness is just as temporary as someone who dies at a younger age. If we're focusing on temporary happiness, whether our own or that of other people, we have not dealt with the underlying issue of sin. We've just ignored it. And how does that help anyone? The temporary mercy of God will not help these people on Judgment Day. If God brings about hardship in our lives, it's His justice. You might disagree with His justice, but would you be as eager to go as far as He did with His kindness? Would you give your son? Would you allow your son to be born into a world that hates him, knowing that he would be crucified, despised, rejected, the son of God's love, the ultimate self-revelation of God, the ultimate expression of his goodness, God's love incarnate, spat on and crucified by people like us, And God sent him anyway for the purpose of saving the world. That's the only question that matters, really. The psalm tells us who God is. It calls us to praise him. But you'll never be able to praise God if you don't admire him first. So Christians should be observant people. We should be reading our Bibles. We should be studying nature. Don't just go through your day glued to your screen. Pay attention to what happens around you. Look at the big ways and the small ways in which God's providence and his care, his sovereignty work themselves out. Look for God's hand in the world around you. We forget that so easily, dear brothers and sisters. We get so, we're so quick to worry about issues in politics or society. We think about life in terms of Politics or power struggles. We get tied into knots over the Great Reset and the WEF and all the other things that happen. Yet God's power and His providence is absent from our thoughts in all of this. We deny God in our thoughts even as we profess Him with our very lips. How can that be? Why don't we give thanks to God for his goodness? We've seen that we are to give thanks for his goodness to all people. We're also called to give thanks for his goodness to his people. That's the second thing that we are paying attention to this afternoon. Verse 10 of our text says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. All your works shall give thanks to you, 
It's maybe more accurate to say all your work shall praise you. It's a, a question of how you translate that word. Praise here is understood in a sense of acknowledging or even declaring. In that sense, even animals and inanimate objects can praise God simply by virtue of the fact that they exist. Good work speaks for itself, right? If you have, if you see a good painting, it praises the skill of the artist who, who created it simply by existing. If you watch the marvelous detail in, in a pencil sketch by Rembrandt, for example, or one of his paintings, even centuries later, it still testifies to the genius of the person who made it. And creation does this as well. All who can are to acknowledge, confess, and praise God. And if all of creation owes him praise, which is what this is saying, then how much more his own people? The psalm says, all your saints shall bless you. That makes it more specific. And it says, saints would refer to God's holy ones, the people who know God. That's us. The word bless used in this sense means to acknowledge his gifts and to worship him for it. As one writer puts it, when the Lord blesses us, he reviews our needs and responds to them. When we bless the Lord, we review his excellencies and respond to them. So the word bless is being used in, in two different senses here. When the Lord blesses us, he reviews our needs and responds to them. When we bless the Lord, we review his excellencies and respond to them. And so we should. If I think about it. We live post-Golgotha, post-Pentecost. We know even more about him than King David did. We know him not just through creation, as unbelievers do, but we know him through redemption. We know him through the great works done through Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection. We know him through his forgiveness and mercy. We know him through his kingdom already among us and even within us. Now imagine this, if even if David with his limited knowledge was able to praise God with this kind of a psalm, then how much more should we? But are, are we doing that? Are we blessing God for his works? Do we acknowledge what he has done? Do we recognize his reconciliation? We have more reason to be thankful than anyone else, but are we? God is so constant in blessing us with his mercy. He's so consistent. Are we equally consistent then in blessing him? What do you thank him for when you pray? Do you thank him for the gifts that he gives? Or do you thank him for revealing himself through his gifts? Or to put it even more sharply, do you thank him because he reveals himself in his gifts? Or because he reveals himself in his gifts? It's good to acknowledge God's goodness and giving his gifts, but really that's only the, the first level of praise. In the end, we need to acknowledge God simply for, for who he is for his character, for his generosity, for his love. Psalm 145 says that the Lord fulfills the desire of those who fear him. What do you desire most of all? What do you want most of all? On a surface level, the answer to that question would probably be different for everyone. But on a deeper level is our greatest desire not to know the Lord. And if that's the greatest desire of all, do we not receive that through faith? 
Apart from that faith, life is tragic, whether you live a long and happy life or whether you don't. The greatest blessing that people can undergo is not outside of themselves. It is not improved circumstances. It is not material blessings or a better youth or plans for a new renovation. The greatest blessing of all is something that happens within. The greatest blessing of all is faith. It is to turn to the Lord in repentance. It is to trust Him regardless of our circumstances because then we are in His kingdom. The doors to this kingdom are open to all who turn to Him in faith. And He's bringing about the kingdom that will never end, the reign that will never weaken, the dominion that will never fade away. He's bringing about the day when all of His works shall give thanks to Him, and all of His saints shall bless Him, and all who will speak of the glory of His kingdom. His kingdom is coming, and it will displace all of our little kingdoms. It renders all of our possessions irrelevant and realigns all of our priorities. It calls us to live in today, but not for today. So verse 10 is the destination. We are moving from verse 9 to verse 10, from what we have received to what we are receiving. Is that not reason for great thanksgiving? Is that not something to celebrate with our friends and our family, the goodness of God? Then you see that thanksgiving is not just for today, but every day. The thanksgiving that will never end. Amen.